Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. This is Dr. Max Boachi. This is the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Vital. Dr. Vital is a professor of orthopedic surgery at Columbia University, and he is an expert on spine surgery, safety in spine surgery, and that is exactly what we're going to talk to him about today. So, Dr. Vital, do you want to tell us about your title and your credentials, and your training. Yeah, well, thanks so much for doing this. You know, I've been lucky to be here at Columbia University Medical Center at New York Presbyterian Hospital for my entire sort of career for 21 years now, and it's been a really fun place. I get to uh, help lead the pediatric orthopedic division and do a lot of work in the department around quality, safety, and value. Uh, And it's been uh, really fun. We are a a big tertiary care hospital. We have 120 pediatric ICU beds and and have a very, very, very busy spine practice with uh, several people here doing pediatric spine. The last year is even more interesting with the addition of Dr. Lenke, who's now uh, one of my partners, bringing lots of interesting kids with spine deformity, but also highlighting the need for doing everything we can to make complex pediatric spine care as safe as possible. Excellent. So would you describe yourself as an academic spine surgeon? Yes, that's right. What is your current practice? How much surgery do you do and how much research? I operate about two and a half days a week, so two days one week, three days the other week. And I never know how to answer those proportion questions, right? Because it's it's 100% clinical, 100% research, and about 80% administrative. So of the 380%, probably 80% is administrative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But honestly, we're lucky we have so much help, you know, and that's one of the advantages of being in the same place for a while, I suppose. We have a great research team, unbelievable help with uh, fellows. We have a unique fellowship that's an advanced pediatric spine deformity fellow that has already done another fellowship. Most of these People are neurosurgeons rather than orthopedic surgeons, and they've come in with incredible experience, and we've consistently had amazing people. So, uh, yeah, we have lots of help, and it's really about the team, as is life and certainly surgery. Now, do you do both adult and pediatric surgery, and do you focus only exclusively on spine surgery, or do you do other types yeah, of surgery? Yeah, I, I just do pediatric spine surgery, but as I have gotten older, so have my patients. So second to last patient I saw today was a 29-year-old with Angelman syndrome who I'm going to be revising 14 years later. So I'll operate on the young adults and the, the sequelae of pediatric disease. So I'll often see a 30-year-old with SMA syndrome who's actually doing okay, but their major quality of life issue is their spine. And But the majority of my practice are younger kids. I About half of my practice is, in fact, children less than 10 years old with spine problems. We do a lot of work around early onset scoliosis as well. 
<clears throat> it sounds like uh, very gratifying work and you're doing really complex surgeries in kids, very much needed. One of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is you started this safety in spine project, spine surgery project. And first of all, what is the safety in spine surgery project? You know, for many years, I was running a course around complications in spine surgery. Part of that course would have a, a deliverable, a work product that would be a best practice guideline, for example, or some work aid that allowed us to make spine care better. And those uh, efforts were really a combination of adult and pediatric surgeons and orthopedic and neuro spine surgeons. That evolved over time to the Project for Safety in Spine Surgery, which is the nonprofit that backs the Summit for Safety in Spine Surgery. And that now is in its sixth year of existence. We just culminated this last year with a slightly different effort. We culminated with Spine Surgery Safety Month, where every day in the month of April, we had a different key opinion leader speaking a little bit about tricks and their perspectives around spine surgery safety. We had a couple webinars that were incredibly well attended with over 700 people registered at each webinar. And we created a best practice guideline for optimal managing of intraoperative neuromonitoring changes in the unstable or high-risk spine. We had previously done something similar for sort of the more typical spine surgeries, but this is focused really on three-column osteotomies, people who are already neuropathic, and the more difficult problems that we encounter. So the Project for Safety in Spine Surgery is a group of people who are invested in making care better from different perspectives, and there's a rich amount of content on the website that include videos of previous presentations and includes keynote speakers, everyone from Steve Andre to General Stanley McChrystal, who spoke at our meeting some years ago. So I'd encourage anyone interested in this field to take a look at it at safetyinspinesurgery.org and to think about coming to one of our meetings, as I am hopeful that the world is uh, turning and we will be having uh, live meetings uh, soon enough. In fact, I'm just back from the Pediatric Orthopedic Society in North America meeting just last week, which was a live meeting in Dallas where we had 500 attendees. And I was fortunate enough to be the president of that meeting where we came out and put the flag back on the hill, if you will. <laughs> it felt so good to reconnect with colleagues. As you know, that's such a pleasure and joy of what we get to do in academic surgery and medicine. Yeah, definitely. It's way overdue, you know, all this COVID stuff. Let me ask you, so what is your role now in the safety? Are you the president of the, I know you are the founder, right? Are you currently the president? I am. I'm the founder and president, but the meeting leadership changes a little bit every year. We always have a mix of uh, neurosurgical leadership and orthopedic leadership. Our department here is is highly integrated between orthopedics and neurosurgery. It was one of the things that Larry felt was really important when he joined. And, you know, I operate frequently with one of my neurosurgery colleagues. I think that collaboration is really critical. So I'm fortunate to be involved a little bit in the leadership of this organization. But the goal of the organization is to help spread all the things that we've learned individually but to really think in a sense about the black box, we all have these lessons learned the hard way. You know, the, the pilots say these are lessons learned in blood. And in aviation, they're really good at not forgetting those lessons. In medicine, we're less good at learning from previous mistakes. So the project 
for safety in spine surgery and the summit is really an effort to uh, learn from each other. And being involved in the meeting is a rich interchange of ideas and thoughts from uh, lots of people with lots of experience in this space. And I always learn a lot from, from being there. So do you have like a specific mission and vision? Like, do you want to reduce some errors by a certain percent or is more like a general kind of uh, mission? Our vision is to reduce the amount of avoidable harm in spine surgery by 50% over the decade. And to be honest, I think that's doable. Um, A lot of the fruit here is relatively low hanging and we are on that journey. If you look at, for example, my infection rate, my SSI rate for spine surgery a decade ago, I'm not proud of what it was. I'm proud of where it is, but we need to continue to evolve uh, over time. And when you really look at these things, a lot of it is avoidable. A lot of what happens is really a result of not enough emphasis on systems thinking, not enough thought about teamwork, not enough effort that's gone into pre-optimum optimization, risk stratification, and things that we can do better in. And that's what the Project for Spine Surgery Safety is all about. Mm -hmm. So when you say avoidable errors, I mean, you can do everything right in surgery and still have a complication, right? You can. We, we, We generally think of error as one of three different buckets. There's the idiosyncratic bucket. What's the chance that a patient has a anaphylactic reaction to betadine? Those idiosyncratic things are extremely rare and happen once in a while, but we over attribute medical errors to this sort of idiosyncratic bucket. Can you believe this happened? Often means it was avoidable. The second bucket is technical, and those technical mistakes probably account for 20 or 25% of medical errors, misplacement of a screw, slip of the kerosene. Some of that is avoidable too. We are humans, but we have the ability to use systems, use technology, and use teams. And I'll tell you, Every patient in my practice practice gets formal risk stratification, and these tools are available on our website. They're available in the public domain. They're available actually on the App Store if you search under RSS spine. But we have tools to stratify risk for neuromuscular spine, for adolescent spine, for all different areas. If that child has more than a 10% risk of an unplanned return to the operating room and what we call an uproar, I'm thinking about calling in reinforcements. I'm thinking about, do I get one of my partners like Ben Roy in the case with me so I can get through the case more quickly? Do I get a neurosurgeon involved so that when I have the inevitable CSF tear, I can manage it faster? And that's another opportunity to extend our technical limitations as individual surgeons. 60% of medical errors are related to systems problems. That means we're not optimizing our system. We don't have checklists in play. Maybe there's a mistake in the EMR that promulgates through and the patient ends up with a wrong site surgery. So if you look at all of those things, it's the reason why, while I agree with you, probably we'll never get to zero. Why is my infection rate under 1% now? And in 2008, it was about 11%. I'm the same surgeon. My patients are more complex than they were 12 years ago. It's because most of that was avoidable. And back then, I was saying to myself, I'm operating on complex kids' infections, the cost of doing business. 
I think that we can accept that. We have to realize that a lot of medical error is avoidable. In fact, it's the number three cause of death in the country. After cancer and all-cause cardiac mortality, avoidable iatrogenic medical harm is the number three cause of death. So we do have a lot of work to do here and really need to work together to, to fix this. That's really encouraging that you were able to reduce your infection rate to 1%. So your project has been in existence for about six years. Why do you think it took so long for this to come about? You know, prior to your starting this, there was no safety in spine movement. Why is it taking so long to get to this point? I think a lot of us have been passionate in this space in our own silos, but that's sort of the problem. We are tribal. We are siloed. We're all working as fast or faster than we can possibly go. And that often doesn't create enough space for cognitive thinking. Sometimes you need to slow the machine down a little bit in order to be more productive. And efforts like this allow us to do the, the cognitive work to do that. I think our organizations are all taking this a lot more seriously as well. I could tell you from the POSNA point of view this year, we started a pediatric safe surgery program that looks at metrics that reflect what I think are related to safer surgery environments. Things like, are we having an interdisciplinary preoperative conference prior to operating on complex spine patients? Things like, are we utilizing formal checklists in our operating room so that we don't miss something? I was also chair of the SRS Committee on Safety, and the SRS is heavily involved in this space, as I know is the AANS. So I think what you're seeing is that we're all on a journey together, but until we cross platforms and hold hands and really realize that this is critically important, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's important for the sustainability of, of what we are, who we do. We are not going to invest enough time, energy in this space to change quickly enough. What are some of the cost implications of patient safety events for hospitals and for patients? I had a spine infection in a complex kid with muscular dystrophy who had a CSF leak who ended up needing a shun who stayed in the ICU for 30 days. And I went through that with our CFO. And that case cost the hospital $580,000, one operation. Was it avoidable? Maybe. So the cost applications are real, but it depends on your perspective. Start with me. I hate complications. All I do is spine surgery in kids. And a lot of that is very complex spine surgery. And when I have a complication, it hurts me. I don't sleep. I, I think about it for a long time. It probably makes me less effective in all my spheres of work. And, you know, there's a concept of the second victim, and that's a very real concept. So the cost begins here. The biggest cost, of course, is paid by our patients who often suffer morbidity, sometimes mortality, complications that, if avoidable, we need to go through every sort of measure possible to do so. The hospital hospitals like this that see a disproportionate number of complex patients bear a lot of the cost. We wrote a paper called The Cost of Complexity. And compared to a place that just does 100 AIS patients a year, a place like this that's operating on lots of kids who are on preoperative halo traction and then postoperative care with complex settings has a harder time even breaking even or not losing money on those patients. And then the societal cost is also very real. 
lost wages, the cost of caring for people that require long-term care, the cost to insurance companies, the medical legal costs. So I think if you add all of those things up, the, the financial costs are staggering, but the real cost is the cost borne by the patient that suffers from a complication uh, in, in this space. Mm-hmm. All right. So the cost is pretty tremendous cost involved. So what should hospitals do to be able to provide safer spine surgery? How much investments do they need to make to improve their spine surgery systems? We cannot do this as individual surgeons. We need to do this at sort of every level of the hierarchy. So the passion and the drive needs to come from the surgeons, the medical doctors, the anesthesiologists, and there need to be methods and perhaps incentives in place for the non-surgical people and the anesthesiologists and the surgeons to all work together. We have anesthesiologists and pediatricians and hospitalists at all of our preoperative conferences, but I, I get the fact that in many settings, that's difficult to do. We need the right systems in place that allow us to take the very best care of people. So, to in many ways, that means dedicated spine teams. It took me a long time to have the privilege and luxury to be able to work with the same four or five pediatric anesthesiologists and the same four or five surgical scrub nurses. And my patients in the ICU are only taken care of by NPs that are highly experienced in taking care of complex spine patients and on and on and on and on. And those dedicated spine teams have been shown statistically over and over and over to greatly impact patient care with regard to decreased complications, decreased unplanned return to the operating room, decreased readmissions, and also to result in financial benefits to the institution. So this is an area that I am passionate about, and I think this is one of the opportunities for the hospital to invest. And there are all sorts of reasons why, in some settings, dedicated spine teams may not, at first glance, make sense to administrators. You'd rather have the player that can do everything, that can hit righty, lefty, and bat and pitch. But in the long term, I would just ask you, do you want your wife, son, daughter to be cared for by someone who's deeply experienced and has a long history of communication with the people around them or not? And the answer is obvious. So this is one of the other areas. The hospital administrations at the very top level need to embrace the mission of safety. And I'm very proud that New York Presbyterian has allowed us to do this and has supported me in my role as the uh, vice chair for safety in the division, but you know, more importantly, has put resources into this area. Mm-hmm. So for surgeons that want to grow their knowledge in this area and for hospitals and spine stakeholders who want to grow their knowledge in this area, what resources do you provide? Do you have training videos? Maybe you can talk about your annual meeting. You mentioned your website. Is it safetyinspinesurgery.com? That's right. What kind of information would they find there? And what is your meeting like? So the meeting generally focuses on opportunities around teamwork, culture, communication, system thinking, and technique. It's the spectrum. Sometimes you'll hear a master surgeon say, these are the things that I've learned about avoiding the vertebral artery in cervical fixation. But the the meeting is also well attended by non-surgical people because of the imperative of systems thinking. So often places that are looking to build spine programs are coming and taking part. 
There is a book that is written, which is a synthesis of the previous five meetings called Safety and Spine Surgery that I think is helpful for people wanting to learn in the space. There's five years of videos of the meeting on the site. But what I would really say is that making care better really is just about perspiration. It's about doing it. What I've learned over many years trying to do this is that basically anything you touch gets better. It's the Hawthorne effect. It's the reality that a cable factory in eastern Pennsylvania that has a problem with production turns the lights on and production efficiency and errors in production improve. And, you know, the analogy is that if you shine enough light on a problem, just doing so makes people better because it changes thinking about it. It changes culture around it. It makes people communicate about it. And that's what we found over and over and over whether it's a problem with VTE prophylaxis, thromboembolism in adult complex spine patients, or SSI, or wrong site surgery, all of these things get better when we simply pay attention to it. And we had a problem, I'll give you an example, Max. We had a problem with pressure ulcers around the faces of our patients that are in a recumbent position for a long time. And we were trying to think about what to do about it and how to quantify it. And we said, you know what? Just take a picture of the kid with the scratch under his or her eye and send it to everyone in the room that touched the kid, the anesthesiologist, the anesthesia resident, all the different nurses. We did this for about six weeks and it went away because the Hawthorne effect is incredibly powerful. No one wants to see that. And it those things get burned into the consciousness of the subsequently caring caregiver. So I would just say, just do it and it will get better. There's lots of theory around quality and my bookcase is filled with it. And there are things to learn, but it starts with the desire of the team to want to hold hands and, and make care better in the space. Excellent. That's fantastic. What is the role of technology? In other words, you know, I hear a lot about robotic surgery, navigation. You mentioned the importance of systems thinking, but what is the role of having the right technology to make surgeons safe? Can you comment on that? I think it's a double-edged sword. We just heard incredible grand rounds from my partner, Ron Lehman, this morning, who's, who's a champion in robotics. And I know that this will have a tool in leveraging our human fallibility, right? Because every hundred times that I touch something, I'll make a mistake or do it imperfectly because I'm human. So if you can get navigation or robotics to improve on that, then we're going to be better. We're going to make the average surgeon stellar. And, you know, like everything else, not everyone runs a 440 at the same speed. We live on a bell curve. The question is, how do you move the whole bell curve or, or, or shrink it so that everyone's operating in the same, more narrow window of performance? And I think technology allows us to do that. Systems thinking allows us to do that. The problems are two or threefold. One is often we're replacing our hand feel, our touch of the patient with technology because of the differences in workflow. I go from understanding the patient anatomy, seeing the facet, visualizing the anatomy three-dimensionally to operating sort of like this. And I think there's some risk in that trade-off. So, you know, these systems need to evolve so that they start with my ability to touch the patient and conceive of the anatomy. And that's where, that may be where augmented reality has an even broader role. The second thing is we can't lose our airmanship. 
If you look at the Boeing flights that went down with the Dreamliner, the root cause was loss of airmanship. And what I mean is, yeah, the computer program was upgraded so that in certain situations, the aircraft lost altitude. But this is something that an experienced pilot should be able to consistently manage. This is something that experienced pilots under duress or trained in flight simulators to do. All of these pilots didn't have a tremendous number of critical air hours, hours under duress, because they've flown a lot of navigated hours. And this is a concern that I have, that we will be replacing a generation of surgeons that uh, learned by anatomy and thinking three-dimensionally with people that are highly reliant on technology that is, of course, fallible and will not always work. So I think it's only until we integrate technology and our traditional surgical skills that we're going to get to one and one being three. And the transition can be hard. And I've certainly seen that at my place. I can tell you that technology is fallible and man is fallible. And ultimately, I think this will get us to a better place. But we are in that transition in my view right now. What is the role of research and the importance of research improving safety of spine surgery? I think one of the most fertile areas is the intersection between clinical research and quality. You know, research that we do on improving quality or quality efforts that we do that aim to improve research are probably the best opportunity for making care better more quickly. If you think about it, these projects that we do, like creating a wrong site surgery checklist, don't need an IRB, require a number of meetings with some expert people that are willing to be honest and can get into press and promulgated so quickly. And is that research or is that quality improvement? I, you know, I don't know. I know that it has a big effect in making care better. And I think that we need to keep on thinking about that intersection between clinical research and quality as the fastest way forward. That's very nice. Let me ask you, should we be ranking hospitals or ranking surgeons? It's a great question. A lot of the traditional ranking has not been perhaps so thoughtful, well-intended, or perhaps fair. I think that some of the traditional ranking, for example, why would a news periodical be in a position to rank spine programs? I think that we as hospitals, as surgeons, and as societies need to take this back. Shame on us that we're not driving this space. And that's why POSNA has invested in the pediatric surgery program. That's why the Project for Safe Spine Surgery has come about. But I'm not sure that ranking is the right way of thinking about it. Ranking has unintended effects like making people and institutions shun risky situations. And we understand that very well from the cardiac world where uh, ranking has the unintended effect of shunting care away from places that were doing high-risk care. That's really not our mission. You know, my mission is to take care of all of those kids, the entire universe of kids, including the medically complex kids. Because we have 35 pediatric cardiologists, we have you know, incredible depth of care, and avoiding those uh, situations is not the right thing for the kid. But I'm not sure that ranking programs is right. I think we need to move the whole bell curve. So we need to make it obvious that there is a certain set of core attributes. Do you have 
preoperative indications conferences? Do you risk stratify quantitatively? Do you have methods for looking at your results and analyzing how you're doing? Are you using formal checklists? And on and on and on and on. And I think these are the type of efforts that we need to emphasize. Uh, You know, if I'm number six and someone else is number eight, I don't think that's a useful way of looking at it. But I do think we need to think about foundational core attributes that make spine care better. And frankly, once we understand those things, aim surgeons to go to their institutions and say, we're going to get called a non-safe spine surgery program if we don't have a dedicated spine team, for example, in the operating room. Uh, These things need to be used in a productive manner. I can tell you (laughs) <laughs> I had a difficult time getting a dedicated pediatric spine anesthesiology until it became a publicly measured thing. So there is a role in looking at these things and documenting and shining light on them in terms of generating resources for your program locally if you're having trouble with that. You mentioned that there's a book you've written. Have you noticed over the six years the impact that you've had, the, the organization has had? You know, have you changed some practice patterns? Do you have any data or evidence, testimonials to share? Some of the most gratifying experiences are calls from surgeons that I've never met before that say, we've never met, but I just want to tell you, I was in the situation in the operating room the other day, and we pulled out the response to their intraoperative neuromonitoring checklist and went through your things. And It was so helpful and I was able to get out of trouble and we got signals back and just want to thank you and your colleagues for that effort. I think that, you know, there's a great book called Upstream, which is how to think about problems before they happen. And the analogy is two guys are fishing in a river and a baby comes floating by and one guy jumps in and pulls the baby out and then another baby comes floating by and the other fisherman pulls the other baby out and then three babies come by. And instead of pulling those three babies out, one of the fishermen runs upstream and sees some crazy man throwing babies in the river and stops him. And I think we're often too reactionary. We're often too focused on the cut to close event. And I think if we start thinking upstream, how do we solve the problem before it happens? You know, we get to be sort of an invisible hero where you get to help invisible patients that, you know, go on to have weddings that they wouldn't have had and farm and garden and spend time with families. And, you know, if you get to do that, that's an incredibly powerful thing. You know, I think that's what safety uh, is really all about, is thinking upstream and avoiding problems before they happen. A few more questions for you. So what do you see as the future of spine surgery? Let's say 15, 20 years from, do you see like complex spine surgeries being performed in specialized centers like your center? Or how do you envision spine surgery would look like in the next decade? My opinion is that there are probably too many places doing too little volume, too little surgery, or too much occasional complex surgery. And, you know, we've written in this space, there's clearly volume outcome relationships in spine surgery, as there are in transplant surgery and cardiac surgery and total joint surgery in abdominal aortic aneurysm surgery and cerebral aneurysm surgery. And I think that we need to take this on. It's not popular. 
it breaches on getting involved in people's practice. And we're a democracy and we generally allow people to do what they want. But I'm not sure it's in the best interest of patients to have someone doing an occasional thing. And sometimes it's not avoidable because there's not another hospital around for eight hours. But I think that we need to think a little bit more critically about what is a center of excellence and either get the place to perform at that level or to say, you know what, there's other things I can do at my organization and I can do a one-level T-lift and I can do a two-level fusion or an ACDF, but I shouldn't be taking care of the medically complex kid with Marfan's with a cardiac, a, a significant cardiac history or the multiply operated on myelopathic adult who comes for a big operation. So I think we need to take this on, but it's politically difficult, of course. Great. That's really great. And you mentioned some books and everything. Everything would be on the website so people can be linked. I'll get that information from you later. What advice would you give to young surgeons as they embark on their careers on how they can become safer surgeons? You get to operate on... I operate on about 200 kids a year, but your touch is so much greater than that. You see so many more patients in the clinic and your touch with regard to who you could potentially impact through quality improvement efforts and who you can impact through clinical research is so much greater. And it's not as immediately obvious, but that's where you really have leverage. So I think that when a new surgeon comes into my department, one of the things I sit down and speak to him or her about is owning the disease. That means finding an area that you're passionate about and an area that you're good at, because we're all sort of good at different types of things, and own every aspect of it. Understand the biomechanics of it. Understand the anatomy inside out. Get really good with the technique and the cutting edge technique. Spend a lot of time on cadavers. Spend early years visiting places and have other people visit you. We don't do enough bi-directional coaching. And when I visit people, I always see, look at how he's putting his retainer and what's going on exactly with his headlight. And there's little things that you learn every single time you see an experienced surgeon operate. Own the disease with regard to clinical research. Doing the clinical research makes you think deeper about the problem and makes you better. As do the quality improvement efforts. We just finished a several-month effort where we developed a guideline for best response to intraoperative neuromonitoring loss in complex spine with a whole bunch of super experienced surgeons, including Larry Lenke. And the last part of this was just two nights ago where we had the last part of our Delphi and we had 120 recommendations. And I could tell you what I learned from this process, and I'm pretty deeply involved in this space, was tremendous. It's the Hawthorne effect. Just being involved in the process makes you better. So that's my advice to young surgeons. Own the space, get involved in every aspect, see the problem from every perspective, and you will get better at it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Vitali. This is uh, amazing. It's being a true privilege talking to you. Where can we get more information? You mentioned it's safetyinspinesurgery.com is the link. And when is the next meeting? Next meeting will be April 21st, 2022. It will be a live meeting with a big hybrid component. But this meeting always sells out and always has video overflow. Speak the passion, the, the, the thirst in the space. But it's why we record all of these presentations and post them online. And it's all available for free. 
So it's an effort to branch out. And I'll just say that if, for anyone who wants to get involved in this space, we only get better by more people with different perspectives getting involved. So we're all welcome and there's so much to learn. So Max, I appreciate the time to spend with you. I think you're doing a great thing here and I appreciate you raising visibility a bit around the importance of safety in spine surgery. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I think the audience really learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Spine Show.